0: On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, a disjointed cherry season for one of Tasmania's biggest growers.
2: This year was one of the more difficult ones, given the the weather in the lead up to the flowering period. We had, as everybody in Tasmania will know, we had all that rain and overcast weather um, and it wasn't really conducive for good flower pollination at the flowering time.
1: And a boost for horse breeders in the state
3: for TAS breeders, this deal really will underpin the breeding industry for the next five years. It gives us confidence to go forward with Magic Millions who are the premium auction house here in, in Australia supporting our industry. It'll give breeders confidence to invest not only in new broodmares and in stallions but in training staff up.
1: Details of a five year contract for the Magic million sale in Tasmania coming up. And what sort of cherry season was it for growers? G'day, Tony with you on this Monday. Well, half the state is having a break and the other half, well, I hope you're enjoying whatever you may be doing and the weather is kind to you. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the program. And also today, we'll talk to a Northwest Tasmanian vet about planned changes to after hours services and also his thoughts on the vet industry. And we'll hear from the Trade Minister about his thoughts on the upcoming trip to China. Will that mean lobster and wine back on the Chinese tables soon? We'll try and find out. Plus, taking your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 922 That number 0438 922 First up, the dairy industry. And despite having to pay record milk prices for Australian dairy farmers, big dairy company Saputo has reported stronger earnings in its latest third quarter results. Ahead of this week's National Dairy Conference in Hobart, The chief of Australia's largest dairy company, Lino Saputo Jr., sounded upbeat at the release of the financial details.
4: Following a solid first half of the fiscal year, our positive momentum has continued across all our sectors in the third quarter. We delivered strong results, reflecting our focus on execution and the advancement of our strategic priorities. Our U.S. sector led the way with a significant year-over-year improvement while our Canada and international sectors continue to deliver consistent results. Our Europe sector trended better despite inflationary pressure and prolonged challenges in the consumer environment. Consolidated revenues increased to 18% versus the prior year due to both inflation-driven price increases and improvements in our ability to supply ongoing demand. The broad-based inflationary pressure we are experiencing across our cost base continues to be well-controlled, and mitigated. We're making progress on adjusted EBITDA margin recovery with a meaningful year-over-year improvement in Q3, a positive step up when compared to the last several quarters. Our focus on inflation-driven pricing actions and on operational improvements position us well from a margin perspective going forward. Consumer demand for our products in the third quarter was strong despite increasing prices compared to last year. Dairy remains an affordable, flexible, and accessible option relative to other proteins on the market.
1: In a webcast from Canada, Saputo released details of its latest result for the period ending December 31, 2022. And according to Chief Financial Officer Max Thierry, the bottom line looks good.
3: Consolidated
4: revenue were for $4.6 billion and 18% increase when compared to last year. Revenue increased due to to pricing initiatives implemented in all of our sector, higher average market price for cheese and butter in the U.S., and higher international cheese and dairy market price. Ongoing inflationary pressures on input costs and commodity market volatility were successfully mitigated by pricing initiatives.
1: Latest result for Saputo comes in a year where record prices are being paid to dairy farmers who supply the company and the scramble for milk continues with the big processors. His company chair Lino Saputo Jr.
4: In Australia, pricing initiatives and healthy demand supported top line results while reduced milk availability continue to impact efficiencies, margins and our ability to fulfill demand in our export market. We make good progress advancing on the Australia Network's optimization plan. In Q3, we announced our intention to permanently close our MAFRA facility and streamline activities at two further facilities in Leangatha and Malau. These changes take effect in Q4. These measures are part of our roadmap to increase capacity utilization, reduce costs, and drive improved returns on invested capital in Australia.
1: Chief Operating Officer for Australia's Saputo Division is Leanne Cutts, who says the milk formally processed at the plants being closed will be handled at other facilities in various states.
0: We talked about the pricing. So yes, both the uh, market pricing obviously uh, did benefit our Australia Division. At the same time, we still have headwinds uh, around our lower milk intake. Uh, actually, we, we now obviously just passed the flush milk season as well for Q3. So sequentially, we're seeing, you know, improvements. Um, and of course, we'll need to keep an eye, uh, obviously, an eye on milk in Australia. Um, we, managing our milk intake is a key priority for us. But equally as important is actually what we do with that milk. Um, and we believe we can still be profitable and maximise the value of every litre of milk from the Australian platform.
1: Despite the problems in the Australian setup, Lino Saputo Jr. told the presentation he had no regrets about purchasing the assets of Murray-Goulburn and would do so again in a flash. As for the future and the continuing ups and downs of the world market...
4: As we close out the fiscal year and look forward to next year, we're paying particular attention to the following areas. First... Inflationary pressures remain high across the supply chain and on wages. In response, we are focused on executing cost savings, in addition to pricing initiatives to offset some of the cost pressures we cannot mitigate. Second, our elasticities are only moderately increasing and we see good market demand, but we are closely monitoring for signs of changing consumer behaviors. Finally, our labor initiatives will need to deliver further results and what remains a challenging labor market for us to accelerate the recovery of our U.S. sector and execute our global strategic plan initiatives. I'm very pleased with our year-to-date performance. We continue to build momentum and we are well positioned for the current consumer economic environment. We are confident that the focus on our key initiatives will drive growth through the remainder of the year and as we continue to execute our global strategic plan.
1: That's the chair of Australia's biggest dairy company, Saputo, Lino Saputo Jr. Ending that report on the latest financial results for the company to the end of December 2022. And the Australian dairy industry will come out of the microscope later this week at the National Dairy Conference, which is being held in Hobart from Thursday. The Country Hour will be there. Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will broadcast the program on Thursday from the conference and will also cross to the pair on Friday for more stories from that gathering. And I'm sure the, uh, the price of milk will be one of the big issues. Well, Australia's Trade Minister Don Farrell will soon travel to China. The invitation to visit his Chinese counterpart comes almost three years after major disruptions to a number of exports, including wine and lobsters. Reporter Kath Sullivan asked the Minister if his forthcoming visit is a sign the relationship is now fixed.
5: We made a lot of progress uh, last year when uh, the Prime Minister met... Um... Uh, the uh, president of China and our foreign uh, minister and the Chinese foreign ministers uh, met, and of course this week I met uh, with my um, counterpart, Minister Wang. Um, we've started the thaw in the relationship, as uh, as they would describe it. Um, so I'm um, optimistic um, that progress is going to be made. Um, in respect of all of the issues that uh, are now standing between us.
6: Can we expect the trade to ever to
5: to resume and to be what it was? Look, there's no reason why that can't happen. Um, But, of course, I think one of the lessons of uh, of the China experience is that um, we need to diversify our trading relationship that's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with India. That's why we've entered into uh, new agreements with the United Kingdom. And that's why we're uh, deep in discussions with the uh, European Union.
6: I want to ask you about those in just a moment. But on China, when do you expect to travel there? And will you be meeting in Beijing or Shanghai or perhaps another city?
5: Um, well, look, the, the ball's in the, uh, the Chinese court um, at, just at the moment. Um, I'm expecting uh, that to be soon. Obviously, I, I got the invitation. I accepted it uh, immediately. Um, I did indicate that um, I uh, had been to Shanghai before and um, uh, there did seem to be a preference for uh, for going there. So it might end up being Shanghai. And when? Look, um, I, I can't give you a definite date. I wish I could. Um, but I don't think we're far away now.
6: We've seen a shipment of Australian coal arrive in China, the first in years. When do you expect Australian lobsters might arrive there?
5: Well, we've had some good news uh, in, in that regard. Uh, for the first time uh, in uh, quite a few years, uh, an Australian uh, lobster company uh, submitted an application for import um, of uh, lobsters into, uh, into China and the, uh, uh, the application was not rejected. So, um, again, I see that as a positive sign in the relationship. But you won't put a timeline on that one? No. Look, um, <clears throat> the, these problems didn't occur overnight, and um, unfortunately they're not going to be solved uh, overnight. Um, my job is to make as much progress on as many fronts uh, to try and get as many of these um, trade impediments uh, resolved and quickly resolved.
6: When do you expect Australian timber might be received in China?
5: Well, again, there are some indications that orders uh, orders are coming through. So there's been a few products which um, progress uh, seems to be uh, heading in the right direction. Um, and, uh, again, I would be hopeful um, that in the very near future... Um, our timber products will in, be coming back into uh, into China.
6: Will Australia walk away from the complaints it's made to the World Trade Organisation about China's tariffs on barley and, and wine?
5: Look, there are two important cases. Um, we've been, we believe we've got um, a very strong case in both, uh, uh, both in respect to wine and in respect to, uh, to, to barley. Um, we're not going to withdraw those uh, applications But right from the day I got this job eight months ago, I said, look, we would much prefer to resolve all of our outstanding trade disputes by discussion and dialogue. And that's the message I gave to uh, my counterpart uh, this week. Um, We we would much prefer to resolve these issues by discussion and dialogue.
6: Over the summer, the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, travelled to Europe to spruik the credentials, the sustainability credentials of Australian farmers. Are you concerned about their reputation overseas? And should producers here expect tough green requirements, things like chemical use and on land clearing, as part of a trade deal with the EU?
5: Look, I don't believe any of those issues will be impediments to us uh, reaching an agreement with the uh, European uh, Union. Um, I spoke with my counterpart on uh, last Sunday night uh, both of us have given our negotiators uh, instructions to proceed as quickly as possible. Um, obviously, they'll have issues on the table, as as do we. Um, but I'd be confident that uh, we can satisfactorily resolve all of all of the outstanding issues at the moment. Um, we've got about fifty negotiators this week um, locked up in the, the Dfat offices, and um, I'm, I'm again confident that um, we're making progress there. Um, and um, there'll be a very satisfactory outcome for Australian farmers.
1: A confident Australian Trade Minister, Don Farrell, talking there to Kath Sullivan about the upcoming visit of the minister to China. Interesting to hear Don say that lobsters may be on the menu again. A lobster company in Australia, as Don Farrell said, application not rejected. They've applied to uh, put lobsters into the Chinese market, and that application has not been rejected. Well, coming up on the Country Hour, the issue of after-hour vets and vet numbers and also avian flu problems.
6: In recent years, Tasmania
7: has milked a record-high 960 million litres of cow juice. That's a whopping 10.8% of the national milk market. So what's all the fuss? Let's find out. This week, Hobart will be the centre of attention for the Australian Dairy Conference created by a group of innovative farmers as a forum to push boundaries and dairy thinking. I'm Meg Powell and I'll be there speaking with the movers and shakers this Thursday from noon on ABC Radio Hobart.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, to a group now that don't really ever have a holiday. Late last year, the Veterinary Board of Tasmania proposed new standards for vet clinics, where requirements for after-hours services would be lifted. The proposal was controversial, with some vets worrying it would lead to those who stay open after hours being swamped, and sick animals needing to be travel hours to the closest after-hours care facility. Madeline Rojan met up with Jack Robinson, a vet from Wynyard in the northwest to hear how rural folk may be affected if the changes do go ahead.
8: I have come across this, um, and, and it's a little bit concerning. Um, so, for instance, the clinic where I work, we service quite a big area, um, and that includes quite a big dairy industry area. Um, and I'm not entirely sure what our clients would do if we suddenly decided we weren't going to offer after hours. like... You know, and I guess it'd be go to the nearest clinic, which would be Devonport, which is all I guess doable if you've got a cat or a dog. But if you've got, you know, a problem with a horse or a dairy cow, which is often what we see after hours, I'm not quite sure what their option would be. I suppose Um, so. It's kind of scary, Um, and I guess you know the more clinics that stop offering after hours, um, the more pressure it is that's going to be put on us that are still doing it. Um, And there's already you know a scarcely few number of vets as it is, Um, so you know trying to you know shut down doing after hours it's concerning but I can on the other hand totally understand why clinics don't want to offer hours because after hours because it's exhausting um you know I can work a whole weekend and then I'm back on Monday doing a full day of consults like I can I can get why people you know don't want to do it anymore
9: (laughs) yes because it it seems that their intention was to protect vet mental health but do you think that that's the right way to go about it?
8: I think the right way to go about it would be to get more vets, but that's easier said than done to share the load. Um, like, I know back sort of, you know, back on the mainland, there's a lot of clinics that offer just an after-hours service, and that's brilliant if you've got the clientele to support that. Um, but in northwest west Tassie, you know, you might only get one call a night. A clinic can't open to just see one one animal. Like, this is just not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the answers for the vet sh- like the vet shortage and the after-hours problem are. Um, but I guess mm, we will see what happens.
9: And if they were to open an after-hours clinic, would that be the answer? Or?
8: It would, I mean, it would certainly help. Like, if you've got, um, that are just in place and their designated working hours are, you know, 7pm till 7am, that would be wonderful because then they, they get to go home the following day, um, and sleep. Whereas if we sort of, you know, do a on-call sort of call at 2am, we're still back the next day, you know, seeing our normal load of animals, um... So, yes, it would absolutely be helpful. Um, I guess the, the challenge becomes how big an area are they going to service um, and, you know, how far can clients travel to get to them. Um, and then we've still got the problem with the large animals. You can't really take your cow to Devonport because it's calving. Um, that's, that's, yeah, not really practical. Yeah, so
9: as you said, mostly after hours, you're, you're getting those more rural kind of patience is that right
8: yeah yeah for sure um I mean it obviously depends on the time of year um so you know carving carving times of year are pretty hectic um there's plenty of times I've had both you know smallies cases and a a carving come up at the same time and you're only one person so you can only do what you can do um but yeah I think I think we will see we will see but yeah definitely a lot of rural cases yeah it's quite scary um and as you know someone who has uh livestock myself I would find it quite concerning to know that there was no one there to sort of back you up if something went wrong But I guess, you know, that's potentially on the cards in some places if, you know, lots of clinics decide to stop doing sort of after hours. But like I said, I can totally understand why vets are sick of it because it's big big hours. It's exhausting, Yeah. yeah.
9: Yeah, and there are a lot of pressures on vets at the moment. Do you think that if these requirements, if the standards were changed... Do you think that a lot of clinics would actually close their after-hours service or that they would keep them open?
8: Yeah, I honestly don't know. I haven't sort of been in the industry sort of long enough. um, But I know as a nurse, um, I was a nurse for many years going through uni and stuff at a clinic and we stopped offering after-hours, our clinic, because it was just too exhausting for the two vets that were there. Um, One of our vets was pretty much on call 24 hours, seven days a week um, for years and years and years um, and she just wasn't able to do it anymore. But the advantage there was, is we were a lot closer to Melbourne, so you've got those after-hours designated facilities, uh, and we were also only a small animal clinic. So it's a totally different affair to sort of rural areas like you know uh, northwest Tassie, where we're servicing all these large animals. So it's just not, yeah. It's, I don't think it's something that we would be able to do.
9: And yeah. um, What kind of stresses are
8: vets going through at the moment? Workload, absolutely workload. Yeah, just too much, too much for too few people, and, and it's hard to say no. Um, there's lots of clinics um, that have closed their books um, because they, just, they physically do not have the staff and vet numbers to take on more patients. That's really hard, yeah, really hard.
9: Are there good support mechanisms in place?
8: For vets, abs- yeah, the AVA are wonderful. Yeah, they're a really, really good group. They've got lots of, um, especially for new grads, there's a really good new grad program that's out there. It's, it's just literally workload. Um, and you can't do anything about that. Like, it's just the workload that's there. Unless you've got more people to work, the workload is spread between less people.
1: Sound like a familiar problem where you are, where your work is. When you'd vet Jack Robinson talking about all the work they do and the after hours with Madeleine Rojan there. And also public submissions closed on the 22nd of December and they're now waiting publication on the Vet Board's website about the uh, changes or any changes to after hours vet services. Big problem. Uh, right across the country with uh, the numbers of vets and uh, the demand, of course. You know, you just don't know when an animal is going to need the vet's help and what time could that be. could be 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. Well, a global outbreak of bird flu is decimating wild and farm bird populations and causing concern among agriculture and health authorities. Millions of wild and farm birds died in the past 12 months as a result of the avian In the UK, there have been at least 200 cases where it's been recorded in mammals such as otters and foxes. Almost half a million birds were culled in 2020 when Victoria suffered the largest ever Australian outbreak of avian influenza. And while this latest overseas outbreak has not yet reached our shore, new researchers revealed migratory birds could bring the virus to Australia later in the year. Reporter Natasha Shapova spoke with Deakin University's Chair in Ecology, Marcel Klassen.
10: The main findings was that, like on other continents, that mainly waterfowl and shorebirds, that they are carriers of the uh, influenza virus. So they are the species that they, they form the reservoir, so to say, of that virus. But that doesn't mean that uh, they are the only ones that can get it. So these virus also uh, can infect other bird species, but they play less of a role in the epidemiology of the virus.
8: And are migratory birds a threat to Australian poultry?
10: Yes, they are. So that is when they bring in so called high pathogenic avian influenza. So listeners may have heard that there is a lot of avian influenza at the moment in Eurasia and North America. Now it's also spread to South America. As a matter of fact, Australia and the Antarctic are the only continents that have so far escaped what we call an incursion of high pathogenic avian influenza. And that's really good news for Australia because uh, it's dramatic what is happening. So I estimate that millions of wild birds have uh, succumbed to the disease over the past two years. And also when it comes to poultry, I think the latest estimate is something like 700 million poultry that have died in relation to this disease. But that's high pathogenic afian influenza. So we're talking about a very specific variant. You should think about it the same way as with COVID, right? Coronaviruses, they're omnipresent almost. But it's certain strains, like well, COVID-19, for instance, that can cause a problem. And it's the same with avian influenza. But our study is very important in understanding what animals, what birds specifically, are responsible for um, spreading and harbouring uh, the virus.
0: And why hasn't Australia had any cases of that influenza so far?
10: Indeed, so far, we should understand that this virus is changing continuously. They adjust to their environment. The main carrier of avian influenza viruses has so far been waterfowl. So ducks and and a few geese species and swan species that that we have, but also shorebirds. And uh, now waterfowl that we've got here in Australia is, uh, is moving around within the continent, but is not flying in between Asia and Australia. Yeah, Papua New Guinea, but it doesn't venture further into Asia. And that means that we've had a a very important player in the the spread of the virus that is being ruled out. Because, yeah, no waterfall. However, we also have shorebirds in the millions that migrate between Asia and Australia. And they form a, yeah, the shorebirds themselves don't form a, a threat, but they could form the bridge for this virus to come to Australia. So we really have to be guard so to say.
8: So what should we be doing to prevent that virus from coming to Australia?
10: So we can't stop bird migration but monitoring the situation and finding out when it comes so that we can take extra biosecurity measures so that it doesn't infect our poultry industry because we should realise that the problem in Eurasia and also North America is that it actually the virus comes into the poultry industry, and there it resides. So it dies out in wild birds' population, because the wild birds, they die, and there are just not enough wild bird numbers to keep that virus going. The listeners should realize that 70% of all birds on this globe are chooks, and yeah, so Poultry is really is a huge number of birds, and they are ultimately the ones that keep the nasty viruses going. That once it comes to Australia, so we should be on the ball there, so monitor our wildlife and see if once it comes, and then make sure that we protect our poultry so that it doesn't come into the poultry because then we're in very bad territory. And at the same time, of course, we should with all means try to avoid the further spread of the fires between, for instance, bird colonies or places where they come together. So that means that when it happens, that we should uh, limit visits to areas where fires are circulating, for instance.
1: Deakin University's Chair in Ecology, Marcel Claassen ending that report on a global outbreak of avian flu. Talking there to you, reporter Natasha Shapova. On our text line, Glenn says, Tony, for some time we were told our primary producers would seek markets other than China. Now it seems we're going back down that same path. We are slow learners. Thank you for that. And Roger on the vets, uh, who is on a pension, is able to pay $700 to have one tooth removed from her cat. Love our vets, but really, Roger. Yeah, thank you for, <coughs> thank you for that. 0438922936 is that text line number. Still to come on the Country Hour, how the cherry season went in Tasmania for two growers. Also a boost for horse breeders in the state and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ely Ward.
7: Thanks, Tony. Rescuers are racing to find more survivors a week after one of the worst earthquakes to hit Turkey and Syria. More than 33,000 people are now known to have died. Nearly one week since the devastating quake, survivors are still being pulled from the rubble, but authorities warn the window to find survivors is diminishing. Almost 100 refugees living in Tasmania will be eligible to apply for permanent residency after an overhaul of Australia's visa system. The Albanese government will implement its pre-election commitment to abolish temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas. Authorities say at least 17 structures have been burnt in two fires on Queensland's Western Downs. Fire crews are still working to contain the fire at Miles and Tara and a watch and Act remains in place. And the Philadelphia Eagles lead the Kansas City Chiefs 24 points to 14 at halftime in the Super Bowl in Arizona. Australians Jordan Mailata and Aaron Sipos are playing for the Eagles. It's the first time two Australians have played for the same team in the Super Bowl. More news at
1: one time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. day, Michael. day, Tony. Uh, rainfall figures have we uh, got anything of note?
11: Yeah, so a bit of a uh, I wouldn't call it cold front, a cool front came through yesterday, brought a little rain mainly in the west. So the highest total in the state to 9 am this morning for the 24 hours was Lake Margaret at seven millimetres and uh. Leg—I don't know how to say it. Leggerwood little Ledgerwood Revulet had five millimeters. That'll do, do you it. You say that, Tony? Yeah, yeah. That, that'll do it. Uh, and that—that that was up in the northeast. Uh, and Zian had had four millimeters. Since nine a.m., we've Matsica Islands had two millimeters. Strawn and Strawn and Scottsdale <laughs> had one. Um, oh, I give up. <laughs> had one mil- millimeter. Uh,
1: that's okay. <clears throat> um, mm. What about the week ahead?
11: So the story is there's a high in the bite at the moment that's pretty quickly coming our way. It's got a ridge over the state from tonight and then uh, it's going to bring settled weather tomorrow through to Thursday, really. On Thursday, it starts moving out to the east and we will start getting warmer northerly winds. And um, that's the story, really. The main thing is uh, the, the uh, temperatures are going to warm up towards the high 20s, lo- very low 30s uh, in Friday and Saturday. With a with a warm spell coming, um, it's just going to be a gradual warming though. So it'll be you know like up a few degrees each day to the end of the week.
1: Okay, so um, we're going to get what three days in a row of pretty pretty warm temperatures, aren't we?
11: Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Thursday to Saturday probably the the warmest.
1: Right. So right back into summer, <laughs> even though we thought we were disappearing uh, out of summer. But anyway, uh, warnings have we got any at the moment?
11: Absolutely none with the high-pressure ridge near us, so that's just sort of still the winds down a little.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, and that tells me we're going to have, uh, what, um, calmer, calmer winds over the next few days and what are the coastal waters and swell? What, um, plenty of people out there, I tell you what, heaps of people out on the water at the moment uh, with the regatta yeah. on, so um, what's happening there?
11: Yeah, well, the winds today, we've got uh, generally around the state, west to southwesterlies, 15 to 25 knots, but variable, about 10 knots in the east. Um, tomorrow we're looking at southwesterlies at 15 to 20 knots in the northwest in the morning. north northwestlies 10 to 20 knots in the south for the whole day, um, and elsewhere around variable winds about uh, at around 10 knots. Also, afternoon sea breezes should kick in tomorrow with the um, with the uh, more favourable conditions for those. The swells we have in the west and the south today. Uh, a west to south swell at three to four metres. It'll be easing to around two to three metres tomorrow. In the north of the state, we have a north-east and a westly westerly swell less than a metre for both days. Uh, in the east, we have a southerly swell of one to one and a half metres today and dropping to less than one metre tomorrow. And we also have a north-easterly swell at one to one and a half metres for both days.
1: And yeah, no rain on the horizon.
11: No, uh, Thursday there may be a little bit in the, far, in the southwest of the state. Friday there could be a thunderstorm around. But, yeah, you're, you're right. There's not much in terms of rain around.
1: OK, Michael, thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. See you later, Michael Conway from the Bureau. We have the latest information for you. Looks like um, OK weather and warmer conditions later on heading into the weekend. And uh, we'll keep uh, an eye on that situation with regard to the fire danger too because we're not out of the woods when it comes to a fire danger situation. In February in this state, okay, did you have some cherries? Did you have some uh, fabulous Tasmanian cherries over the break? I did. They were beautiful, absolutely big, big and rosy and just so luscious, fantastic. We'll talk to a couple of cherry growers in the moment just to ask them how the things went.
0: On the ABC Listen app, you can select your own news stream and listen to -to up-to-the-minute news that matters to you whenever you want. Select world news... Russia's invasion of Ukraine... Or local news... Disability Royal Commission... Or both. Choose to get Triple J news, finance, and the news from the state, territory or regions that you want to hear about. Stream
12: all the sports...
0: Or no sports. It's totally up to you. Choose the news that matters to you on the ABC Listen app. Coast to coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Big boost to the horse breeding industry in the state coming up that story and uh, also we'll talk to uh, a couple who are starting a butcher shop on their farm. Well, one of Tasmania's biggest cherry growers says fruit from his Dewan Valley Orchard just made it to market in time for Chinese New Year celebrations. But a late season around the state saw many orchards struggle. Like most of the state's cherry growers, Reed Fruits is picking the last of its cherries and wrapping up a disjointed season. Tim Reed told Fiona Breen that a late season and early lucrative Chinese New Year market made things challenging for many orchardists.
2: This year was one of the more difficult ones given the the weather in the lead up to the flowering period. We had, as everybody in Tasmania will know, we had all that rain and overcast weather um, and it wasn't really conducive for good flower, uh, you know, pollination at the flowering time. It was too cold for the bees to come out a lot of days and um, even though we have hundreds of hives in our orchards we hire in, um, we got about a three-quarter setting so it was a bit lighter crop But probably one of the biggest issues is that it was all late, and it couldn't have been late in a worse year than this year because the big sales opportunity for us, other than pre-Christmas, is the Chinese New Year or Lunar New Year right across Asia, and that was on the 22nd of January, so that's about as early as it gets in the cycle. So a lot of growers just didn't have fruit in time to capture that surge in sales, but even worse. Once Chinese New Year is celebrated, most of Asian people go on New Year holiday for about a week or ten days, and the market just goes dead. So the export opportunity dies. So you don't only miss out on the sales before you capture the... You then get caught in this dull period in you know, later on. And that puts a lot of pressure back on the Australian market to absorb cherries.
0: So your harvest was... Was it about three quarters of what it might normally be on, a, on an average year?
2: Our certainly was. Some growers had bigger crops. Some growers lost a lot of cherries in the rain. If you've got earlier varieties and they were mature or getting close to maturity early on when the rains were still coming through, a lot of growers just got smashed. But look, in our case, I'm not complaining about what's happened with us. I think our own company did extremely well under the circumstances. We, our main orchard is in, in the Derwent Valley up at Plenty and we largely missed most of that rain that, that filtered down into Tasmania uh, earlier on in November and through early December. Uh, so
0: the Hewen Valley might have suffered a bit more of that rain? Yes,
2: yeah, certainly did. We've got orchards down here now again and you know, they had a lot more rain down this way, and consequently, the earlier varieties down here that we harvested had suffered quite a bit of damage from the rain. But we managed to get the the, the property in the Duran Valley to flower a bit earlier than than normal, and and we managed to harvest virtually the whole property in the Duran Valley, our main orchard, before the Chinese New Year. Which
0: so that that was, got yeah.
2: there? Yeah, that we got them all off and got them exported by about the 17th or 18th. So they got up there in time to be sold before New Year and we got very good money um, for the fruit off that property and they were a really good size. Just because we missed out on a lot of that rain, the soil temperatures were warmer, the fruit sized up better. So that's really been a great saviour for us.
0: Would you say you got better money this year than previous?
2: We certainly did, you know, up until Chinese New Year. The shortage of fruit from not only from Australia I think from New Zealand and and probably even out of Chile going into into Asia in time for the early Chinese New Year just a shortage of fruit and we, we got really really good prices on best we've ever had
0: Where were you sending them to which countries
2: Taiwan was our biggest market closely followed by Hong Kong the Vietnam would be number 3 uh, that's a rapidly growing market for us and um, and mainland China still plugging away at about number four, and that's they're taking less cherries into mainland China now than they were pre COVID. And that's nothing to do with the political issues. I think it's just about China's being very strict about COVID and checking cherries, swabbing boxes, swabbing cherries. You've got to wait for the results. The importers are nervous about that time it takes and um, yeah, so that's probably one of the reasons why they've taken less
0: Now in COVID we had problems with freight, difficulties getting cherries to certain places, we had uh, a particular flight that was uh, subsidised by the government, what happened with that this season?
2: Yeah well the scheme that's supported by the government to cover some of the increased cost in freight wasn't applied this year, we had to pay a higher price for freight this year than we paid last year. But as I mentioned earlier, if we were fortunate enough to get the fruit away early, we got high prices so so that sort of covered the increase in freight cost largely. I'm not saying we can do that every year but, you know, it's difficult to see how we're going to get the freight rate ever ever get the freight rate back to what it was pre, pre-COVID days. There was more freight available because of the increase in passenger movements so that was all a help. I think we have all these different things happen every year, it's just a it's very interesting to follow all the, all the changes that occur every year and things that are beyond the grower control um, in trying to you know, get fruit into the markets.
0: You're at the end of the season. Uh, have you looked at tonnages and numbers yet, or is it too early?
2: I don't know how we come out financially um, exactly. I think we're going to make a bit more money than we did last year with a lighter crop than we had last year. I always say you never know whether you've had a good season until you see the money on your bank statement. I think we'll do all right. I think we've done all right. On it. Do
0: you roughly know the tonnages you, you sent out?
2: Oh, yeah, We would have harvested over 2,000 tonnes on an expectation of harvesting maybe at best about 2,500 tonnes. So we've, we've done pretty well. Overall, we've, as a company, we've done pretty well. As an industry, well, it's been a tough year. A lot of growers have had a really difficult time and uh, through no fault of their own, just to do with the weather particularly and the timing.
1: Yeah, it's a bit hit and miss, isn't it, as farming is? Tim Reed, Managing Director of Reed Fruits, talking there to Fiona Breen, and he's just finished his 55th fruit season. Initially, the family business was growing apples, And then the big switch to predominantly growing cherries a couple of decades ago. And just down the road in Franklin, family fruit growers, the Griggs, took a big hit to their cherry harvest numbers with a 50% drop loss in the crop in December because of the rain. Fiona Breen caught up with Dane Griggs as the last cherries were being packed.
12: We finished picking on Monday, so we've got one more day of packing and that's all over for the cherries for this year. You've had a few workers, you've had enough workers this year? It's been a revolving workforce. Yeah, they come and they go. Uh, But luckily there's been more backpackers this year, more travellers, which is great.
0: Happy to see backpackers back?
12: Oh, yes, very happy. Yeah, very happy. No, they're good. Well, most of them are good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Time for a rest?
12: Yes, time for a rest. Um, Yeah, so hopefully Monday we'll jump in the camper van and have a few days up the east coast.
0: But only a few days?
12: A few days, yeah. Apple season starts in about two weeks. Our first new season apples will be out, so... It all starts again for another year.
0: It's really no rest when you're doing cherries and apples.
12: No, no. I remember when I was a kid, we used to go to Ulverston every summer for our school holidays and we just had apples, but that's all over.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, tell me how the cherry season went.
12: Uh, Yeah, weather-wise, not good. We copped about three rain events all at the wrong time, which caused quite a bit of splitting in the fruit. Um, which brought our production down to about 50%. So, yeah, it's been a hard slog sort of sorting all that out, getting, you know, a, a pack that's up to export quality and then and then getting it to the market. But
0: When the rain hit, that affected fruit that it was already about half grown, would you say?
12: Yeah, it was just turning from green and taking on a bit of colour and that's a a point where the fruit's very firm and hard so if there is a rain event, the skin hasn't got any give and it can crack quite easily.
0: So you saved 50 percent and were you happy with the prices that you got for those ones?
12: Yeah no very happy with the prices we're getting um, so they're slightly up on last year which, which helps cover the increased costs of, of production with all the inflation issues going on.
0: And where did you send those cherries?
12: Uh, mainly Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong.
0: Is it too soon to say if you'll make any changes for next year?
12: Uh, It's in the plans, yeah. We're still looking for a a, a suitable uh, rain cover for the cherries. There's a lot of different designs. We're just trying to figure out which one would suit us in our our applications. So, yeah, we're always out there looking to improve things.
0: How many hectares do you
12: have? Oh, we're quite small with cherries. We're mainly apple growers, so we've only got about four hectares of, of cherries.
0: All right, well, let's turn to apples. And we've got some beautiful apples here beside us. They're all looking pretty good. These are some of your older trees, aren't they?
12: Uh, yeah, these have been around a while. So, yeah, no, apples have been good this year. The weather's been kind for apples. They love rain. It's a bit of a catch-22. You, you want the rain for the apples, but you don't want it for the cherries at certain points. But now the apple season, Touchwood, is looking good for us. We haven't had any major weather events that cause any damage. The mainland has had a few weather events, which has brought national production down, so we're hoping that um, prices will be a bit firmer.
0: Because they have been a bit low, haven't they?
12: This year coming, they will be low. I've I've heard there's could be a hundred thousand less bins out of Shepparton this year. So um, where other years it's it's slightly on the verge of oversupply nationally. So it'll it'll be I'm not, I'm not saying it's good because there's certain growers out there that don't think it's good. But then we copped a thirty percent loss of production last year due to a hailstorm. So it sort of it all goes around in circles. We all have to take out. <laughs>
0: So there might be more demand for Tasmanian apples, and therefore prices might hopefully be quite good.
12: Hopefully, yeah, yeah. No, there is. Um, there's a lot of buyers actually coming to Tasmania at the moment, looking for extra fruit to to top up their their stocks on the mainland. So, um, yeah, at the moment it's looking promising.
0: And what types of apples have you got here?
12: Uh, we mainly grow um, Royal Gala, and we've got our own variety, Ruby Gold, which is it's going really well. So. They're our main two varieties, and we have a few Golden Delicious and Fuji's and, and bits and pieces around the edges.
0: So, how big is the apple part of your business, and, and how many hectares do you have of, of apple trees?
12: Yeah, well, apples are probably yeah, 80, 80 to 90% of our, of our business. So, we're still only a family farm, so we've still only got about 40 hectares of apples.
1: It's Dane Griggs, tough cherry season for the family orchardist in the Huon Valley bit. Luckily, apples are looking good, touch wood talking there to Fiona Breen about uh, how the cherries went and how the apples are looking. Uh, Brian on the text line says, Hello, Tony. Bees were mentioned in your interview with Tim Reid. They are important, we, we know. Today is an Irish feast called Madominock. He was born in Ireland, served under David in Wales, and when he returned to Ireland, the bees went with him. There you go. Thank you for that, <laughs> Brian. You have a great day too, that uh, story about the bees. Well, coming up for you, uh, we'll talk about grass-fed lamb and uh, a butcher shop on a, on a farm.
13: The quest for the big brass mug continues. On the new season of Hard Quiz, award-winning comedian Tom Gleeson Hello. is throwing down the gauntlet to some new contestants. You made that sound really creepy. And challenging some more unusual expert subjects. That's when you thought things wouldn't get weirder. Sam, colonoscopies is your expert. The new season of Hard Quiz. Nothing's weird on this show, mate. Wednesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
0: It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Well, a couple who run a farm near Western Australia's south coast have decided to get into a full paddock to plate operation. Malcolm Bat and Samadi Army have a small grass-fed lamb operation near Denmark. That's about 400 kilometres south of Perth. They also run a small catering business, but soon they're going to add a butcher shop to the mix because they hope it will help them stay in control of their finances.
14: We're about to open a processing place in town because we've had trouble with butchers having a lack of labour so we can't get our produce or our lambs processed. So we had no alternative to open a business. So that's what we're going to do.
15: And you said that you were a butcher by trade. How long has it been since you returning?
14: Uh, I would say maybe 42 years, 43 years.
15: And how does it feel to be coming back to it?
14: It feels really good. Uh, I think that's, that's one piece of the puzzle that I never got to achieve to have my own shop. So it's you know, never too late, I suppose. So.
15: And will you only be processing your own lamps?
14: I think initially we will. But we'll also be looking forward to doing business with other uh, farmers in the district, because it's all about Denmark's produce, and I don't think it's been done before, not in Denmark anyway.
15: How much will this value add what you're currently doing?
14: I think it'd almost double my my turnover.
15: Mm. Yeah. And why did it take so long to get back into being a butcher?
14: I guess I was having too much fun in life, farming. (laughs) And now I'm getting older and I guess there's a bit more seriousness to it, yeah.
15: And you guys currently do a bit of catering as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how this new front is going to benefit that as well?
16: Yeah, uh, it really does help with the value-adding on our our produce uh, all the way down the line. The vegetables that we grow as well as the meat we're producing – We're able to supply something to people that isn't really happening very much, like a direct farm-to-fork experience through, and it's basically transluted through the farmer as well. So the catering is sort of something that spun off of us wanting to value-add the actual animals as like another side branch of what we're doing. It wasn't anything part of the original plan. But it's something that's happened and it's worked out pretty well for us. The response, the feedback I get from people is amazing and that's very fortifying. Because also as a farmer, you don't get a lot of direct feedback. Malcolm, when we started doing this, Malcolm said, in 40 years of farming, no one's ever said, dude, that lamb was awesome, right? And when we started doing this, one of our customers rang us up the first night. and I was so glad Malcolm answered the phone because you heard it straight from the source, from this guy saying, I am ringing you up to tell you this is the best lamb I have ever eaten.
15: And the curry sort of business that you guys have going on, how long has that been happening for?
16: Oh, five years we've been doing events. Um, We started out doing like an odd event here or there, and then I started doing the market, the Quirbutt market regularly. And then Rockcliffe, Uh, winery has a summer session where there's a series of local bands that play and we were invited to do that and provide food there and it just kind of kept expanding like someone sees you there and then they say oh I've got something coming up can you come and do that for me or there's a wedding can you come and do this wedding or I want to run a retreat group can you do in house three meals a day food for us all of which it turns out I can do What would have happened if you
15: guys didn't choose to diversify and value add the way you have with your business? We
14: would not be able to ride the rough times. Yeah. The good times, anyone can, you know, high prices, yeah. good seasons, anyone can make it through then, those, those times. But it's, it's the hard times when interest rates go up or you have a, pa- a poor season. You, you struggle, and then it takes another 12 months to get back.
16: Yeah, that's, yeah I agree. It really does. It, it makes a difference. It gives us a margin that we can kind of rely on that's more stable. If we are subject to all the other influences in the market, we're really vulnerable. We're just too small.
15: So when will this new shop open up? I believe there's going to be a kitchen out the back too yeah, for I you, know. Smarney. Yeah,
16: yeah. no, we definitely need the kitchen space to be doing the food from. The guy who's doing the stainless work for Inside the Cool Room said February 11th. So once we do that, then basically it's pretty much good to go. We need a couple of stainless benches and pretty much everything's there. We'll be ready.
15: Is there... A demand for this sort of thing to be happening in Denmark?
16: Yeah, I think more and more people are more aware. <laughs> in a way, it's kind of a, a bit of a bonus from COVID, too. It just made people more aware of where the food comes from and what's involved in the supply chain and what happens when it fails. And that it's actually really important to try and support what's near you and what's local because when that supply chain fails, you're going to need it where you are. If it's not coming from somewhere else, you know, you've got to find it where you are. Yeah, COVID was a real uh, uh,
14: game-changer for us because we found people were keener on having meat delivered to their front door than going to the shops. And
1: the boat. Yeah, Denmark grass-fed lamb farmer Malcolm Bat and partner Samadi Ami, who have a catering business and, as you heard, are just about to open their own butcher shop on farm, ending that story from Sophie Johnston. And you can read more of that story online at ABC Rural. finally today the horse breeding industry in Tasmania has received a boost with the announcement of a further five-year deal to continue the magic million sale in the state for a further five years. The announcement coincided with yesterday's Hobart Cup meeting and has been welcomed by the Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe and all those involved in Tasmania's racing industry.
13: And this is a a tripartite agreement that's about investing in Uh, the future of racing, it's about investing in rural and regional Tasmania and it's wonderful that we can have an agreement for five years uh, for the Magic Millions and what that means is uh, huge opportunities for uh, Tasmania, Tasmanians and indeed uh, the racing industry and why we're doing this, we're supporting uh, people in rural and regional Tasmania uh, to have a go and the magic million sale has grown enormously over the last few years from uh, humble beginnings uh, to one million dollars in sale, turned over to last year some four point three million dollars uh, which is a fantastic result uh, and can I say this will really boost uh, the breeding program when it comes to TAS Racing, encourage jobs in rural and regional areas uh, the TAS Racing industry which uh, supports the Tasmanian Economy with hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over the course of the twelve months of the year. Fantastic opportunity for all. Yeah, well, I'm Tim Brown from Magic Millions, and I look after
17: Victoria and Tasmania, and have done here for the last ten years. And it's been um, a great pleasure of Magic Millions, Jerry Harvey and Katie Page Harvey, and they are good supporters of the Tasmanian racing, and we work in conjunction with Tas Racing and Tas breeders, and we've formed a very good partnership, I think, and business understanding. And we're just trying to improve every year, and we're very lucky that we've got some very go-ahead people down here, the, the Wishaw family from Armadale, who have invested in new stallions and the McCullochs Grenville, and um, they're planning for the future. And hopefully, we can continue to sell this their produce around the world. Oh, it's great to have a presence here. You know, for Magic Millions, we're Australia wide. So to have a race series down here, and we've got the races next uh, Sunday night, a two-year-old and a three-year-old race preceding the sales on the Monday, it just gives a little bit of confidence, I think, to breeders and people purchasing horses that we're all together and we're all, we're all
3: standing behind the, the product. David Wisher, I'm president of TAS Breeders. Uh, I, guess, I guess for TAS Breeders, this deal really will underpin the breeding industry for the next five years. It gives us confidence to go forward with Magic Million. Uh, as the Minister said, who are the premium auction house here in in Australia, supporting our industry. It'll give breeders confidence to invest not only in new broodmares and in stallions, but in training staff up. As the Premier said, the sale has grown from uh, just on a million dollars ten years ago to an excess of four million dollars in under ten years. Uh, We've seen uh, huge interest from not only overseas, not not only interstate, but overseas, so we're getting buyers coming from around the world now to buy in Tassie, and, and having the support of Magic Millions, not only to run the sale, but to run their race series is just a, a huge feather in the Tassies breeding and racing industries cap. It, once again, I think it gives great confidence to our racing industry, our trainers, our jockeys, and our breeders to have Magic Millions running one of their race series down here. Um, the graduates of those race series always go on to bigger and better things, and often highly sought after in the auction ring as as broodmares or stallions thereafter. Andrew Jenkins, CEO Tass Racing. Oh look, it's terrific for us, and we're delighted to uh, be uh, signed up for five years with uh, Magic Millions and as Tim and David have both indicated it really does give confidence in the industry so people can continue to invest they'll continue to breed and that means that we're going to see uh, an even higher quality of bloodstock that's uh, coming through uh, our, uh, our racing which is just terrific and if you look at some of the graduates of the, the sales I think Mystic Journey fair to say is the uh, the poster girl having won the inaugural all-star mile in in 2029 so uh, you can certainly buy in Tassie and, and expect that you can have success at the races. Uh, having a lo- local breeding industry particularly uh, important and, and as we've said it creates employment it creates opportunity and it creates a, a genuine interest in tassie product in racing
1: ceo of TAZ racing andrew jenkins on the continuation of the magic million sale in tasmania for a further five years ending the country hour for today more stories online and don't forget this thursday we'll take you to the australian national dairy conference in hobart with meg powell and Fiona breen